You know, I'm sure that our graduates have lots of questions floating around in their minds today about life and about the future. If they've decided where they're going to spend the next few years, they're probably wondering what life is going to be like on campus or wherever they're going. And no doubt they've been thinking about life after school. You know, what are they going to do? Where are they going to live? Who are they going to marry? How many kids are they going to have? Well, maybe they aren't thinking all those questions today. But I'm sure they're thinking about life and what the future holds for them. And hopefully, hopefully they're optimistic. Now, I don't want anyone to think I'm trying to rain on their parade by what I'm going to say next. But the most important question about life is one that I really doubt they're thinking about this morning. And it's one I didn't hear mentioned at the graduation last night. And that, quite frankly, is what happens after death. Now, suggesting that we think about death and what comes after death while some are wearing a cap and gown might seem a bit strange. But I really don't think it's inappropriate. After all, our understanding of life comes from the answer to that question. For it's in answering that question that we discover our purpose in life and understand why we're here. In fact, the major decisions we make in this life are determined by our understanding of our next life. If there's nothing beyond the grave, we either seek personal pleasure at all costs or we strive for some type of immortality, usually through our children or the legacy we hope to leave behind. If we're convinced that there is life after death, we live in such a way that we are assured the kind of eternity we desire. And we no doubt think about the resurrection and probably have questions about it. They may range from the simple ponderings of a child, such as, are there puppies in heaven? To deep theological questions. But all honest questions about life after death should be taken seriously. And most are hard to answer. Some hard questions about the resurrection, however, are simply calculated to make a belief in life after death look ridiculous. And in our text for today, Jesus deals with one such question, a dishonest question thrown at him, not to gain understanding, but in an attempt to confound him. Now, we've seen this happen a couple of times already during this last week of his life. The religious authorities were desperate to find some way to turn the people against him or to find grounds on which to charge him with a capital offense. And even though they had no interest in learning 
from the only one who could actually speak authoritatively about life after death, we can obviously learn from his answer. The answer to a most unusual question built around a ridiculous hypothetical situation. We're in Luke chapter 20. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless and the second And the third took her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. (laughs) Now, isn't it amazing how adept we are at creating hypothetical situations to justify our beliefs or our lack of them. If we don't want to believe something, we create a situation in which that belief seems to be invalid. People do this all the time with regard to baptism. The Bible teaches clearly that we are to be baptized by immersion as believers, and that baptism is a part of the saving process. Instead of simply doing what the Bible teaches, however, many people justify their reluctance to be baptized by creating what-ifs. You know, what if someone decided to come to Christ and there's no water available? What if they were dying and unable to get to water? What if they die before they get old enough to personally believe in Christ? You know, they assume that if they can create a hypothetical situation where the rule may not apply, that they can disregard and discard the rule. Or if they can imagine a situation in which a belief seems ridiculous, that the belief must be erroneous. That's what the Sadducees were doing. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And as we learned in Sunday school, that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, They were liberals. They were a liberal, politically oriented sect of Judaism that arose around 300 B.C. They didn't believe in angels, spirits, the Messiah, or the resurrection. And they came to Jesus with a question calculated to make the resurrection look ridiculous. They built their question around the ancient practice of leveret marriage. Now, leveret is from the Latin that simply means brother-in-law. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses wrote that if brothers lived together and one married but died before he had a son to carry on his name, his brother was to marry the widow and raise up the first son 
in his brother's name. Now, this was ordained to assure that every family kept their inheritance in the land of Israel. The only biblical account I can think of where this comes close to being practiced is found in the book of Ruth, where Boaz, Ruth's closest and willing relative, took her for his wife and raised up a son in the name of her deceased husband. By the time of Jesus, however, this practice was no longer followed in Israel for the simple reason that the nation had long since lost its land inheritance. But that didn't keep the Sadducees from using it to create a ridiculous, hypothetical situation. One, according to Matthew's account, they clearly stated as fact. They said, now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. The fictitiously created scenario was not only built on an obsolete law, it was also built on false assumptions about the resurrection. And in spite of their lack of sincerity, Jesus answered their question. And in doing so, cleared up some fundamental misunderstandings about the resurrection. Verses 34 to 36. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for neither can they die anymore, for they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, there was a time when this passage really bothered Marilyn. She thought it meant we wouldn't be married in heaven, it doesn't bother her much anymore. <laughs> but I trust, I trust, that it's because she's come to a better understanding of the passage, you know, not the fading of romance. Anyway, Jesus met their question head on. And according to Matthew and Mark, he began by stating in no uncertain terms the reason behind their lack of understanding. They did not know the scriptures or the power of God. And this, by the way, might also explain why some have such a hard time accepting the truth about baptism. Perhaps they don't know the scriptures well enough. Or maybe they overlook the fact that God can do whatever he wants in extenuating circumstances. Be that as it may, if the Sadducees had accepted all of the Old Testament, they wouldn't have had such a hard time believing in the resurrection because the resurrection is clearly taught in the Old Testament. Now, true, there are times when doubts about the resurrection are expressed, as in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon questions everything. But confidence in life after death is clearly taught in the Psalms and in the prophets. 
In Isaiah 26, 19, we read, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And Daniel clearly states in Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. You know, they may not have tried so hard to come up with a question that they thought would make the resurrection look ridiculous if they had known the scriptures and believed them. But they asked the question and Jesus answered it. He said, the sons of this age, this age, marry and are given in marriage. But those considered to be worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection don't. Now, as an aside, I think we should note here that Jesus indicated that no one is worthy to become a son of the resurrection. Some are simply considered to be worthy as Abraham was considered to be righteous by faith. The main point of his teaching, however, is that while marriage has an important place in this life, it will really have no place in the life to come. Why? Because sons of the resurrection are like angels. They're no longer physical beings who die. And since no one will die in heaven, there will be no need to reproduce. Thus, no need for marriage. Now, that's not to suggest that marriage is only for the purpose of reproduction. It's also for relationship, for companionship. But the oneness experienced in a marriage relationship on earth will be shared by everyone in heaven. It won't be an exclusive, limited relationship. In fact, marriage is intended to picture on earth what it will be like for us all in heaven, where Christ is the groom and we are the bride of Christ. The question was not only insincere, it was based on false assumptions. And Jesus cleared them up. He could do that. He could speak with authority about the resurrection because he knows what he's talking about. And if we want answers about life after death, we should look for them in God's Word, not in a book about someone's near-death experiences. The Scriptures give us the answers we need. And I want to note just a couple more for you this morning. In John 5, 28 through 29, we clearly read that in all the tombs, they will hear his voice and will come forth. The good to a resurrection of life and the evil to a resurrection of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 44, we're taught how this body will be changed, how we must die like a grain of wheat before we can bring forth 
a produce in a new form. And Philippians 3, 21 through 21, tells us our resurrected body will be like Jesus' glorified body. That means it will be visible, able to eat and be touched, but not bound by the laws of physics. Our belief in the resurrection is confirmed by Jesus and the Scriptures and, surprisingly for the Sadducees, by Moses himself. Verses 37 through 40. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, You've spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. The Sadducees held that Moses didn't believe in the resurrection or life after death because they couldn't find it in his writings, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the only part of the Old Testament the Sadducees accepted as authoritative. And the Pharisees, they accepted the entire Old Testament, and they believed in the resurrection. But they had been unable to convince the Sadducees that Moses believed in it. They argued about it all the time. And Paul used this controversy to turn them on each other and away from him in the book of Acts. Well, Jesus did what the Pharisees couldn't do. He proved that Moses believed in the resurrection of the dead, and he did so by quoting the passage, he says, about the burning bush when God spoke to Moses. And he quoted Moses' statement that the Lord was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then noted that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living and that all live to him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all been dead hundreds of years when Moses said that. And since God is not the God of the dead, that meant they all had to be alive in his presence. They had left this life, but death had not changed their relationship with God. And it doesn't change ours either. Now, the logic of Jesus' argument on this point may not overwhelm us, but it did them. The scribes admitted that he had spoken well, and the Sadducees didn't have the courage to question him anymore about anything. Overlooking their motive in asking the question, Jesus answered it. And he exposed their lack of understanding, saying it was based on their lack of knowledge of God's word and the power of God. He reasoned them into a position where they had to at least admit he made sense. And that belief in the resurrection was more credible than they had believed. 
He did not, of course, prove the resurrection by arguing. But he would prove it in less than a week by rising from the dead. And the evidence for Christ's resurrection from the dead is as solid as any you can get for any historical event. When we add that to the answer he gave to the Sadducees and to the rest of Scripture, the only reason we have for questioning the resurrection today is lack of first-hand experience. Someday, we will get that as well. Hopefully, it won't be too late for you to stand.